Hello and welcome to episode 214 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today our story brings three young men together in the most horrifying way. I must warn you in advance that the story contains some horrendous crimes and although as always I try to speak clear of the detail, some of the scenes portrayed might be disturbing to some. Okay, so have you entered the Patreon competition yet to win dinner or lunch for you and a friend with me in Edinburgh next year at one of the top restaurants? You just need to head to patreon.com slash crime before the 31st of December to enter and also you can claim two months free membership of Patreon. What is there not to like? And a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon but especially this week's new members, that's Dizzy DJ. Sue Brown, Gina Judd, Cara, Kirsty Lee Lindo, Catriona W. Brown, Gemma Valantius, Susie, Paul Murdy, and Monique Stone. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. It really, really is. Oh, and a shout out to Rebecca from Instagram. Take it easy there, Rebecca. Stay classy. No adverts today, so let's quickly set the context with our month and year game that nobody is talking about. Brianna and Calvin Harris found love and were on top of the UK charts. In the US, it was moves like Jagger from Maroon 5 featuring Christina Aguilera. In the Australian album charts, Adele was in the top spot again with 21. In the news this month, from the Yockey, Irish professional darts player Brendan Dolan played the first perfect nine-dart game on TV in the semi-final against James Wade at the PDC World Darts Championship in Dublin. The former leader of Libya, Manaman Gaddafi, and his son were killed shortly after the Battle of Surti while in the custody of NTC fighters. And in New Zealand, at the 7th Rugby World Cup final held at Eden Park, Auckland, tournament favourites New Zealand Edge France 8-7. If you recall, it was hard not to raise a chuckle when Liam Fox finally resigned as Defence Secretary after a week of allegations over his working relationship with his friend and self-styled advisor Adam Warity. Remember that? And in UK true crime news, Dutch engineer Vincent Tabak was convicted of the murder of landscape artist Joanna Yeats and sentenced to life imprisonment. Did you get the month and year? It was October 2011. The story today begins in Leicester. In 2007, 72-year-old Radhaban Chowan was residing at the Hayes Park nursing home in Leicester. The home is situated in a quiet cul-de-sac in the Rowlett's Hill area of Leicester, offering accommodation for around 50 residents. In particular, it caters for the elderly, people with learning and physical disabilities, people with dementia and those suffering with their mental health. Radhaban was a very sociable, strong-willed woman who had devoted her life to helping others. She was at the home recovering from a stroke, but she was really looking to the future, in particular, her grandson's wedding the following year. Radhaban always had a lovely, warm smile on her face and was liked by residents and staff. Also in the home was 56-year-old Rashmi Badiani. Rashmi and Radhaban got on well together and shared a room at the nursing home. They had a great room on the ground floor, 
but unfortunately due to their illnesses, both were pretty much bedbound for most of the time. But they were both in good spirits and looked forward to the regular visits of their loving families who enjoyed visiting them at their home. On the 6th of November 2007, 19-year-old Nathan Mann was out and about, looking for easy targets to burgle. He had convictions for burglary, but that was no deterrent for him, and he didn't want to stop this particular habit. He noticed that a downstairs window of Hayes Park Nursing Home was not locked, and at about 11.30pm, he snuck through the window, which led him directly into Rashmi and Radhaban's silent room. Initially, Nathan was looking for something suitable to steal from the room, but once inside, he began to undress the women. And once they were partially undressed, man attacked the women. They both needed constant medical care and were unable to defend themselves. It was a sickening attack. Man used his bare hands and fists to inflict severe head injuries on Rashmi, causing extensive fractures to her skull. And then he smothered Radovan with her pillows and other bedclothes. Man then left the scene without it appeared stealing anything. Just before 4am the next day, staff carrying out their routine early morning checks walked into the room and it was a quite terrible scene. Both women were clearly dead and they'd suffered the most appalling injuries. But staff couldn't work out who on earth would have wanted to hurt these two lovely gentle women. Later that day, man handed himself into the police, telling detectives that his plan was to burgle but saying he couldn't find anything worth stealing. He refused to give further details about the crime he'd carried out, although he later told friends he was, and I quote, the lowest of the low, and they would hate him forever. And images of the crime scene made for very distressing viewing. Man claimed he had no recollection as to why the two women were partially undressed, and it was unclear on whether a sexual assault had taken place, but due to their state of undress, there clearly was some form of sexual motive. Man freely admitted the two charges of murder and was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 24 years and three months. He was sent to Franklin Prison to serve his time. Rashmi's family believed that Man deserved never to leave prison for such a shocking crime, saying, He took away the right to life of two vulnerable women, and for that, we would like to see him never having the joy of a normal life. He has taken the smile from our faces and made our lives a misery. We have lost a dear and loved member of our family, and that pain will never go away. Radhaven's son-in-law said, Man took away from us one very precious person who can never be replaced. We will never forgive him, and he must pay for his crime. You're probably asking the same as me that there were clearly questions about security at the residential home, but a later investigation found that the home's managers were satisfied that the home met standard safety requirements. Mitchell Harrison, having a seemingly normal background and family life, whatever normal means, first got into trouble with the police when he was 13 years old. He was given a formal warning for indecently assaulting a seven-year-old girl. The law around this sort of crime has subsequently changed, of course that's good news, and nowadays he'll be charged with rape due to the nature of the assault. Harrison did not learn from his formal warning 
and at 15 years old at school, he grabbed a fellow student's breasts and when she tried to defend herself, he told her he was going to rape her. He was taken to court for this but not charged with any offence. Harrison continued his like of very young girls into his early 20s, sexually abusing girls under the age of 16 whenever possible. A very young-looking 13-year-old schoolgirl was wandering around Kendall in Cumbria one afternoon and she met Harrison for the first time. He befriended her and then said he needed to go back to his flat to get money for cigarettes and drinks and he asked whether she would like to join him. At first it was all fine and jokey but once there she realised that something was seriously wrong and he soon made the now frightened girl strip and then he raped her twice. Luckily another man turned up at the flat and the girl used this opportunity to grab her clothes and run out of the flat naked onto the street to make her escape. This girl who had suffered this terrible ordeal at the hands of Harrison returned to school and tried to lead the beginnings of a normal life again. She could not go to sleep anymore without a light on and struggled to see any point in life, saying that she wished that she was dead. She sometimes had to sleep with her mum as she was still so scared following her ordeal. Her mum later said, It's been a nightmare. Words cannot begin to describe how awful it has been. You think these things only happen on TV, not your own family. If you know her, she just looks so young. She doesn't wear provocative clothes or look older. I think he's just a bad, bad person, a paedophile, who has not shown any remorse for what he did. The whole ordeal has made me feel ill. I tried going back to work, but it was just too hard, having it go over in your mind again and again, and it doesn't get easier. It doesn't feel better with time. I still can't even talk about it without crying. This should never have happened to my daughter. She will carry it with her for the rest of her life. I hope as she gets older, she can put it behind her and she can just think, at least I survived. I think we all share that hope, don't we? The 21-year-old Mitchell Harrison, having admitted to two counts of rape, was sentenced to four and a half years in prison by Carlisle Crown Court in January 2010 and put on the Sexual Offenders Register for Life, with the judge saying that Harrison posed a substantial risk to girls and young women he was sent to Franklin Prison. As you may know, Franklin Prison is a dispersal prison that holds male prisoners who are over 21 years old and whose sentences are four years or more. It holds many who are serving life sentences and who are high-risk remand prisoners. All cells are single occupancy. Former inmates include Peter Sutcliffe, Howard Shipman and Charles Bronson, and current inmates include Levi Belfield, Ian Huntley and Mark Dixie. Harrison liked to boast in Franklin about how he'd committed loads more sexual offences than he'd been found guilty of and had got away with them all. He had a cockiness about him that was really most unpleasant. And his boast did not go down well with some of the other inmates. In particular, Michael Mann, who we heard about earlier, who was inside for the two murders, and another prisoner called Michael Parr. In 2003, Michael Parr was sectioned in a psychiatric unit due to his deteriorating mental health. He was being treated for his illness whilst there, but he attacked another patient trying to suffocate them. He was tried for attempted murder, 
and imprisoned at Franklin Prison. They both thought that Harrison was arrogant and cocky. Harrison part a man were classed as vulnerable prisoners because the nature of their crimes made them prime targets for others in the prison. The three had therefore been placed in the vulnerable wing at Franklin. Although Mann and Parr had made threats to both staff and fellow inmates, they weren't considered to be a substantial threat and were not on staff's radar to particularly watch for any signs of trouble. Mann told his mental health nurse, Susan Duffy, that he planned to kill a nonce, as he called it, in January 2011, and she subsequently filed a security information report, which was sent to the prison security department. Nurse Duffy felt there was every chance that man would indeed carry out his threats, and he told her he had nothing to lose. But the report was dismissed as idle threats by man. Nurse Duffy had deemed man as manipulative, and realised quickly that he was inventing illnesses such as anxiety, and complained of hearing voices, in order to receive medication so he could sell it on to other inmates. He told another psychiatric nurse that he had fantasies of chopping off fellow prisoners' heads and cutting open their stomachs. In the increasing time they spent together, Mann and Pa had started to talk about killing another prisoner, but they were undecided as to who they would target. They got very excited by their plans, especially when they talked about exactly how they were going to do it and how that would make them feel. Pa, who had always been a bit of an outcast, was delighted he'd found a mate in man with whom he shared common interests. Although both were clearly immature, weak and seen as vulnerable in jail, they wanted to be seen by fellow prisoners as hard men. But as they kept discussing their murder fantasies, it kept them quiet and occupied for a few weeks. Their discussions deepened further, into other fantasies about a number of subjects, including cannibalism. Harrison, meanwhile, was by all accounts the model prisoner. He did as he was told, didn't cause much trouble, and just got on with prison life. On September 26th, 2011, at 9pm, inmates at Durham's Franklin Prison turned into Channel 5's Jack the Ripper, The Definitive Story. I know, I know people love Jack the Ripper, I find it so dull, I think I would prefer Countdown, or Pointless, anything. The programme discussed Jack the Ripper in very graphic detail, especially the ritualistic aspect of his murders, and also spoke in great depth around the investigation. The documentary triggered a real debate with several members of staff, thinking it was really inappropriate to show that kind of content to such potentially dangerous criminals, and they made their feelings known. I think it's hard not to agree with this analysis. However, they were overruled. Just days later, on a bright and warm Saturday morning, the 1st of October 2011, the prison regime was its usual relaxed self at the weekend. It was when prisoners could have lie-ins or take part in activities such as going to the gym or playing table tennis, snooker, or even take the opportunity to cook their own meals. Although the regime was more relaxed, there were more staff around at the weekends. Pa spoke to Harrison and asked him to keep watch whilst he and Mann engaged in some sexual activity in Mann's cell. He did as he asked, and once at Mann's cell, cell C22, Harrison was thrown face down onto the bed 
and man immediately began attacking him, hitting him and trying to strangle him. Pa went over and shut the door. Man then asked Pa for a pen and after pausing for a split second, he shoved the biro into Harrison's left eye, into his skull. Man had thought this would kill Harrison, but it only made him struggle and scream all the more. Man had thought it would be quite easy to kill Harrison, but it was proving more tricky than he'd planned. He tried to snap Harrison's neck, but also failed at that. He had par hold Harrison down by his legs. At the time there was no restriction to prisoners on toiletries, disposable razor blades or plastic cutlery, nor were they monitored. The two had made a knife out of disposable razor blades and a plastic knife. A man tried to cut Harrison's head off at the neck. Harrison was screaming but nobody heard him, or if they did no one came to his rescue. Man severed an archery with a homemade knife. There was blood everywhere. Man thought Harrison was dead by now, and so then began to cut down the middle of Harrison's stomach. However, it appeared this was not the case as Harrison still struggled and Pa found it hard to keep Harrison down. With their prior knowledge fueled by the watching of the Jack the Ripper TV programme that they'd watched a week before, they cut a T-shape along the waistline, exposing Harrison's small intestine. They'd previously planned to cut his liver out and split it in half to eat it, but when they saw it, they decided they didn't like the look of it after all and left it inside his body. The two abandoned their project and sat and had a cup of tea and a cigarette each and a chat. They then pressed on the buzzer inside the cell in a request to have it opened by prison staff. Officers who came to open the door were greeted with a lake of blood and Harrison's body still on the blood-soaked bed. Man and Pa were like two naughty schoolboys. They told officers smirkingly that they'd done something very bad and needed to be segregated. Man went on to say very calmly that there was a dead body in the cell. When asked why they did it, both of them just shrugged their shoulders. Man said they'd planned it for a while and just fancied doing it. And there was nothing in the cell to suggest there had been a fight or even a struggle had taken place. After seeing a psychiatrist, Man was described as a classic, cold, remorseless, callous psychopath who harbours cannibalistic urges. Prison staff found a diary in Man's room in which he had written very graphic descriptions of gory crimes and rituals and in a letter he explained how he planned to commit the goriest killings ever to force prison staff to move him to a segregated wing of the prison. He said in his notes that he did not have the guts to kill himself but he did have the guts to kill someone else. He could not handle the voices in his head and the belief that someone was going to kill him. He said that killing someone was the only way he thought he would be segregated from everything and be safe. And later in court, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter, not murder, due to diminished responsibility. Pa did not say an awful lot to prison staff. He was mainly concerned about losing his privileges now that he had an enhanced security status. Pa admitted murder. Harrison's family said, He was a much-loved son and brother, and we are devastated by his death. Although we never condoned his past actions, he was by all accounts a model trusted prisoner who did not deserve to die in this horrific way. 
Our lives have been shattered by Mitchell's horrific murder. His death was cruel and unnecessary. As his family, we live with the pain and heartache that losing Mitchell has caused us. Paul was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 32 years. Man was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 16 years on top of his current sentence. Of course, the events of that day were horrific for the staff at the prison. One prison officer, having subsequently been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, received a big payout after he was left haunted after seeing the sight of a disemboweled Harrison in man's cell. He suffered with flashbacks, anxiety, lost sleep and depression. And following the murder, several staff at the prison were given time off to recover from the psychological trauma. Franklin Prison houses more than 800 of the country's most dangerous criminals and has seen a string of high-profile assaults. They include Peter Chapman, who is serving a life sentence for the murder of Darlington teenager Ashley Hall. He was assaulted in Franklin, causing cuts to his face. I covered his crimes in an earlier podcast. And only weeks before the murder was spoken about today, Soham killer Ian Huntley had his throat slashed with a razor and separately, three prison officers were left seriously injured after being attacked by an inmate wielding broken glass. In 2011, the Prisons and Probation Ombudsman for England and Wales called on prison staff to improve prisoner safety by recording and sharing more information about violence and intimidation. A prison service spokesman said in response that prisons took the responsibility of keeping staff, prisoners and visitors safe extremely seriously. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Firstly, I think our feelings are mixed when we hear of the horrendous murder of Mitchell Harrison. I appreciate that many of you will have no sympathy at all for him. He was, after all, a child rapist. And people will think that he deserved exactly, exactly what was coming to him. Others may feel a tiny bit of sympathy for the brutal way his life was taken. I feel for his family, who, whatever he had done in his life, and he had carried out the most dreadful crimes, was still devastated by the manner of his death. And what of his murderers? Immature men living in the false environment of jail and wanting to be seen as the hard men in prison. It's pretty pathetic, isn't it? That too is hard for many of us to comprehend, and it was more than a little pitiful that Pa was most worried about losing his enhanced privileges. Institutionalisation, I guess. Again, it's hard to have any sympathy, and it's no loss that they will both die in jail. My sympathies here lie with the prison staff, who have to witness such scenes. As those of you who know me well will know, I have great sympathy with our prison staff who have an impossible job to do as we keep sending so many people to jail. Maybe one day we will realise that we can't rehabilitate prisoners when our jails are overcrowded with so many people who could be dealt with much more successfully for the benefit of society by other means. But I guess that's a conversation for another day, or maybe on the UK True Crime Facebook page. That was a great segment, wasn't it? Even by my standards, as the 37th most popular 
the UK True Crime Podcast. Why not come and join 51,000 of us on Facebook and let's talk UK True Crime. And if you want to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. It's your chance to enter the competition to join me in Edinburgh next year for lunch or dinner for you and a friend. It will be fun. No, it really will be fun, I promise. Or if you can't make it to Edinburgh, let me know and I'll just send you my three favourite true crime books of 2021. So that's all for me for today. So if you want to check out the footage of me at a sauna in Rochdale, just join us on Patreon or you might find it in some other parts of social media. And also, if you haven't got your ticket yet for CrimeCon UK in June next year, it's the ticket for the summer next year. Please go and get one now before the prices go up in January. Just search CrimeCon UK and use the code UKTC for your discount and a bag of goodies when you arrive at the event. Oh, and by the way, at the bar, one's a beer and it's your round. So on that bombshell, it's goodbye for me for now. So thank you again for joining me. And until we speak again next week, please do take it easy, despite all the others. Trust me, I know all about the others. It's so difficult, isn't it? But above all, stay classy. Cheerio.